Good morning, Thrive. How are we doing this morning? Y'all sound good this morning. I'm doing good this morning. We just got to baptize a baby, which is absolutely one of my favorite things to do. Later on, we're going to welcome new members into the church. It's just a good Sunday. We got people here from Sri Lanka. It's a good Sunday here in Thrive. We are continuing in our sermon series that we have called Then and Now. For the last three weeks, we looked at stories of our church's history, this local church's history, that we feel uh, not only defined who we were as far back as over 70 years ago, but, but continue to define who we are today and propel us into our vision together as a church family. And now we're going to make a turn. For the last three weeks, we've been talking about history. Now we're going to talk about the future. We're going to talk about evangelism. Uh, now that we sort of know who we are and we've become more clear about who we are, let's talk about how we get who we are out into our communities, into our neighborhoods, into the families of Dallas and Collin counties and surrounding areas um, that we feel like could find a home here at Lover's Lane. Evangelism is not everyone's favorite topic. In fact, a good Methodist can be a little scared of evangelism sometimes. We're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about that today. But for the next four weeks, we're going to talk about different things surrounding the subject of evangelism. Um, today, I want to start off by, by talking to you about when I was in college. I went to the University of North Texas. Go mean green. Kaka! Yeah? Anybody? No? Oh, man. Yeah, school spirit's pretty lame there. Um, so it's like people are there to get a degree or something and move on with their life. So um, when I went to UNT, I, was, uh, I stayed in a dorm that was on like one corner of campus, and I went, most of my classes were in the English building. It was on the clear other corner of campus. And UNT's campus is not small, it's not enormous, but it's pretty big. And so it was a good 10, almost 15-minute walk every day from my dorm to the English building, and I'd make that walk sometimes a couple times a day. And uh, during the course of the year, I, I would see some interesting things on that walk, right? Like if it was the early fall and uh, the fraternities, I guess I could say plural, there were like two or three of them at UNT, not very big into Greek life. They'd be out on the lawn trying to recruit um, some pledges, I guess, wanted to pledge at UNT uh, into their fraternities. They'd be there. Or, or if it was election season, uh, there'd be people lining the walkways, political types and activists trying to get us to sign petitions and telling us what existential threat we should fear the most that week. Uh, and then at least twice a year, usually once a semester, I'd be walking from my dorm room to my classroom, and I'd see this sort of, I'd hear it before I'd see it. I'd hear kind of this sort of commotion, and as I get closer, I'd see this crowd of maybe 30 to 50 people gathered around what looked to be a very angry middle-aged man, and, uh, and I knew what time of the year it was. It was my favorite time of the year. Is it a bird? Is it a plane? Is it an overly zealous Christian pastor preaching hell and damnation? Actually, it is that one. It's Bible and Barstool guy. Am I the only one who's ever seen him? Have you not witnessed this superhero in your own life, Bible and Barstool guy? Did he not come to your college campus too? Is this a UNT phenomenon? Bible and Barstool guy would show up about once a semester with a Bible and a Barstool in hand, and he would stand there and he would remind all of us heathen Dentonites that we were doomed for hell, that we were hopelessly lost, terribly amoral, that there was no salvation waiting for us, that we were just pitiful sinners. It was quite the sales pitch. Have you heard Bible and Barstool guy before? Have he, has he visited your college or 
anywhere that you've lived. Maybe you haven't met Bible and Barstool Man. Maybe you have seen one of his associates. Uh, Megaphone Man, anybody? Anybody? Anybody seen uh, Guy on the Street Corner, End Times Prophet Man? You ever seen that? Yeah? How about lady in front of the grocery store who's really upset about that one particular sin woman? She needs to work on her name. It's a little long. We've all seen people like this. We've heard of people like this. I'm guessing that someone like this has come across your life at some point. And I'm also willing to bet they didn't do the best job of selling you on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Maybe they did. I need to change the way I preach. Okay, this sermon is all about hell. No, okay, we're not going to do that. Okay. Unfortunately for a lot of us today, when we hear the word evangelism, the image we get in our mind is someone standing on a street corner yelling at people who are walking past, or or maybe we get an image of someone going door to door saying, can I talk to you about Jesus? And, And maybe those images are not the best images for us, and it makes us think that evangelism is not something we're cut out for. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about today what evangelism is. And actually, before we even talk about what it is, let's talk about why we do it. Because evangelism, as I understand it, is sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. We're going to talk more about what that means later on today. But evangelism for me means sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. But before we can talk about what that means, we need to talk about why we do it in the first place. Why should we care about sharing the good news of Jesus Christ? Because I don't know about you, but if you're like me, before I understand why I need to do something If I don't understand why I need to do something, then then it makes it that much harder to actually do what I'm supposed to do. Does that sound like you too? So for the next four weeks, we're going to talk about evangelism, and we're going to start today with the simple question of why do we evangelize? And to understand why we evangelize, we're going to turn to a familiar scripture for a lot of us, and maybe this is the first time you've ever read it. This is a good Sunday for you. This is like a very important scripture in the Bible. It's Matthew chapter 22 beginning in verse 34. Let me set the stage for a second. So what we're about to read is Jesus interacting with Pharisees. Scott, what's a Pharisee? Pharisees and Sadducees, those are two names that we're going to see today. Those were people who were high-ranking members of the priesthood and the scribehood of the temple back in Jesus' time. These were important religious people, people that would stand on a stage and tell people about their faith, right? So Pharisees and Sadducees would look something like me 2,000 years ago. Jesus is talking to Pharisees and Sadducees. And what they're doing is they're having a conversation, or really what they're doing is they're cornering Jesus. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to trap him in his own words. They're trying to catch him in a sort of a gotcha moment, right? Because they'd heard of this guy named Jesus who is a bit of a rabble rouser, a bit of a radical, who is asking the Jewish people in Israel to rethink this faith that had been handed down to them for generations from priests and parents. And he's telling them that maybe this faith looks different, should look different than it looks like for him in those days. That's not good for Pharisees and Sadducees whose livelihoods are are built upon things staying the same. And so they're cornering Jesus and they're trying to catch him in a heresy. They're trying to stump him with the question. They're playing stump the rabbi, basically, with him. 
And they ask him this really simple question, and he gives them a really simple answer, and we're going to talk about that today. And so uh, before we read our scripture, let's pray together as a community of faith. Gracious God, as we prepare to hear some words that some of us have heard since we were infants, like the one we just baptized, or, or maybe some of us are hearing these words for the very first time this morning, I'd ask that you would allow us to hear these words with fresh ears. Allow us to be captured by their simplicity and also their power. In your son's holy and precious name we pray, amen. This is the gospel according to Matthew. He says, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, because of course it's a lawyer. My best friend's a lawyer, I can say that, it's okay. They, the lawyer asked him a question. Teacher, what, you guys are feeling bad for me because my best friend's a lawyer. I know that now, that's why you're laughing, stop laughing. I have other friends too, but some of them are lawyers, it's fine. They're good people, I'll stop justifying them. Okay, teacher. He says, which commandment is the most important? Simple question. Which commandment in the law is the greatest? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. He doesn't stop, though. He says, this is the greatest and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Mic drop, Jesus out. This is Jesus' answer to a simple question. What is the greatest commandment? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And also love your neighbor as yourself. And the Pharisees and Sadducees, they, they, they can't catch him on this. They can't stump him on this because they know that's the right answer. We're going to talk about that in a little bit too. But today I want us to look at this scripture. I want us to study this scripture a little bit to understand why these words inform our why of why we evangelize. So, uh, to start, I'm a millennial. I didn't know if y'all knew that. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm a millennial. I'm, I'm told, I'll say I'm told I'm a millennial. I don't know if I'm a good millennial. Because I'm told that millennials um, really love participation awards, and we have really thin skin, and we like expensive avocados smeared across our toast. Um, and <laughs> I've thrown away all my participation awards Teasing is a love language in my family. Mom and dad are in the room. And uh, I think that jelly and butter is just fine on bread and toast, personally. If you believe that too, say amen. I actually tried avocado toast. I did. Because I'm like, what is BuzzFeed going on about? Why, what, what is avocado toast? It's avocado on toast. Like, I don't understand why this is such a mind-blowing thing. Okay, I'll get off of that. But I just, it was $8, and it's just avocado on like. Avocados cost like a buck at La Michoacana. Go over there and smear it on your toe. You're fine. Like, whatever. Okay. That's what my sermon's going to be about, I guess. Avocado toast. <laughs> Sermonette. That's, that's the clip they're going to put online. Um, so I'm not a very good millennial all the time, but millennials are my people. And in a lot of ways, I am very much a millennial uh, and I'm going to have to learn how to pastor to my people as I, as I continue in my career of ministry. And the reality is, I think millennials are kind of interesting people because in one hand, we're a generation that is more connected on the surface level through technology than any generation before. That's like, duh, everyone knows that now. But 
I think at the same time, we might be the most private generation that's ever come along as well. Um, because I said it's this surface-level connection. We're, we're happy to go on a rant on Facebook or to share a meme or to post a picture of our daughter getting messy at dinner. But I don't notice many people that are, that are actively looking to talk about the really deep, meaningful stuff, the, the, the stuff that really matters, the stuff that we think about life, that kind of stuff, or the stuff that we think about God, or the stuff that we really think about ourselves, not just what we're willing to put on a profile. I think that in some ways, we try to keep that stuff really bottled down. And when you take that kind of a mentality, a, a mentality that, that, that wants to be sort of surface-level public, but also very deeply private, and you apply faith to that, you get this sort of interesting cocktail, because what I've got at least in my experience, is a bunch of people who have more access than ever before to, to thoughts and ideas and ways of living and ways of thinking and ways of doing. They, you can go on the internet and you can read C.S. Lewis and you can read Aristotle and you can read Joel Osteen and, and, and you can make up your mind about whatever you want, but at the same time, I don't notice a lot of really deep, meaningful, spiritual conversations happening in the lives of the millennials that I interact with on a regular basis. Not you churchy church types. Like, when I come to your house, we have Bible study. We're supposed to do that, right? Like, that doesn't count. Okay. Maybe that's because a lot of millennials had a Bible and barstool man come to their campus. Just out of curiosity, if you're under the age of 40 and you ever had a Bible and barstool guy or something like that show up to your college, raise your hand for me. Okay. So y'all were super quiet and did not laugh earlier, and you knew what I was talking about, and I just, I just got you. But I think that's a big reason why. Because a lot of us went to college, we, we grew up, we became adults, and we were given this image of what it means to talk about faith, and we did not like it, because we realized that everyone else was walking right by. Here's the problem, is that the Christian faith cannot be kept private. The Christian faith cannot be lived in the confines of your own home. The Christian faith was never to be designed to be a private practice. John Wesley, who is the founder of Methodism, he believed this to his absolute core. When he talked about the Christian faith, he said this. He said, solitary religion is not to be found in here. There is no holiness, he says, but social holiness. Now, what does he mean by that? There is no holiness but social holiness. What he's saying is that when, when we are pursuing holiness, when we're pursuing the life that God would have us live, part of that includes us getting that holiness outside of ourselves, meaning that that holiness, that pursuit, has to spill out into the world and the communities and the neighborhoods and the dinners and the coffees around us. We have to allow this holiness to take hold of our outside life just like it does our inside life. For the record, Wesley was not inventing this line of thinking. He wasn't the first person to say that what's happening on the inside needs to happen outside as well. He's borrowing Jesus' line of thinking in Matthew 22. He's just simply quoting Jesus, basically. When Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind and your soul, and also love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus is saying that these two commandments are intrinsically linked. You cannot pursue God without pursuing your neighbor. You cannot pursue God without pursuing your neighbor. It's just not possible. So today, the first part of why we evangelize, it's simple. We, we evangelize first and foremost because we cannot claim to love God unless we seek to bring good news to the world and the people around us as well. 
So whether you're a millennial or the grandparent of one, let's understand this first. A personal faith is only half the equation. A personal faith is only half the equation. If you say, man, you know, my faith is really just about between me and God. Wrong answer. Go read Matthew 22. You just, you can't say it. You can't. You can't. You can't say it. I wish I could say that. Trust me. I wish I could. I wish I could keep my faith personal. But I can't because Jesus tells me that there's something about loving God that means I have to get out and love my neighbor too. So the second part of our why we evangelize has a lot to do with what we consider evangelism. Traditionally, I think a lot of us think that evangelism basically is going out and talking about, to people about the name of Jesus Christ, right? Can I talk to you about Jesus? Can I talk to you about Jesus? Can I talk to you about Jesus? That's sort of our standard classical image of what it means to be evangelists. And, and that's kind of correct, right? That's kind of a correct definition. But the problem with that understanding is, guys, we all live in the Dallas area, how many people do you think in, let's just say Dallas and Collin counties, how many people do you think do not know the name Jesus Christ in Dallas and Collin counties? I'm going to guess it's close to this number. I'm just, it's just a guess. And I guess that because it is hard to go five minutes in this city, in this area, without tripping over a church and landing in a Bible study right? Like, I don't care if you came from some corner of the world and immigrated here where, where, where they didn't know who Jesus was. If you step out of the airport, right, like, you're going to hear the name of Jesus. It's just going to happen, right? So I don't know if we say that evangelism is simply getting out and telling people who Jesus is. Is that really enough? Is that something that our city needs more of? Or is there something else that we need to do first, at the beginning of this message, I said that I define evangelism as sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And, and I use that definition for a reason. Because I think that good news, even Jesus' good news, sounds different to different people. It's why we have four different gospels in the Bibles. Have you ever wondered about that? Why do we need four? They're all the same story, right? <clears throat> Wrong. Matthew's gospel is written for Jewish people. Mark's gospel is written for new Christians. Uh, Luke's gospel is written for Greek people. John's gospel is written for like his crazy sect of Christianity that was forming and he was doing theological stuff. Nobody else was doing the gospels. Each have a very, sorry about that. That was quick. I'm, I apologize. Yeah. Um, I, have to, I have to slow down is what I've heard. Um, and I also am preaching in big boy church today and they really like for me to slow down. Um, the Gospels all exist because the good news of Jesus Christ sounds different to different people. And our good news might need to sound different to different people. There's an old saying that says, um, it's hard to hear the good news on a hungry belly. It's hard to hear the good news of who Jesus Christ is on a hungry belly. I think that Jesus, when I look at his story and the way that he ministered, I noticed that before he would teach people about a better way of living, before he would share, people, uh, share with people his faith, first he'd share with them a miracle or a sign or a wonder, something that was a tangible expression of the hope and the joy that he was about to tell them about. It's always the tangible thing that comes first. Here, let me show you what hope and joy look like, and now let me tell you about hope and joy. I think that we need to be doing a better job of this. In the Dallas and, get this guys, in Dallas and Collin counties, we have somewhere in the ballpark of 2,000 Christian churches. Guys, like, process that number for a second. In Dallas and Collin counties, we have around 2,000 Christian churches. 
Now here's another stat for you. In Dallas and Collin counties, we have just over 1,000 unsheltered homeless persons. These are people who don't have a room at the inn. These are people who go to sleep every night without shelter. 2,000 churches, 1,000 unsheltered homeless persons. If one out of every two churches in Dallas were to take in a homeless person and shelter them, our unsheltered population, it's, it's, it's done like that. When I talk to millennials, when I talk to unchurched people, when I talk to people who've given up on the Christian church, frequently the biggest reason that they, they have is because they look around at issues like that. They look around at the issues that affect our communities, and they look around at the thousands of churches that say they're here for their communities, and they wonder, are these thousands of churches really doing anything to fix these problems? Are these thousands of churches really doing anything to help their communities, do they really care? If they really cared, would these still be issues? We've got hungry bellies in Dallas, and not just in the literal sense. We've got people who maybe need to see the church do something new for them to hear the story in a new way. This is why mission and outreach is so vitally important in our local churches. You might not think of missions and outreach as a part of evangelism, but they absolutely are. And here's why. Because it's one thing for us to get together and to do really good things, but when we get together and we do really good things in the name of Jesus Christ and we make that known, then what we're doing is we're giving the people of our communities a chance to see Jesus in a new light and to see Christians in a new light and to connect this loving-kindness action with the loving-kindness words that we're trying to share with them. We need to feed some hungry bellies if we want to speak to some open ears. Just like the love of God and the love of neighbor, the two of those things are intrinsically united. But before we roll up our sleeves and we lace up our shoes and we get ready to go out and be the hands and feet of Christ, like I'm speaking to a United Methodist Church. And I've grown up in the United Methodist Church, and I love the United Methodist Church as a denomination because we get missions and outreach really right, in my opinion. I mean, UMCOR, United Methodist Commission on Relief, is one of the absolute best things in the world, hands down. I mean, they go to places that everyone else leaves to help them continue rebuilding. It's fantastic, but, but, I think sometimes, especially in my denomination that I love, we are much more comfortable doing the good work, and we are much less comfortable telling people why we do it. Because I guess we're scared or we're afraid of making them uncomfortable, or we don't want to come across as another Bible and Barstool guy, maybe you're thinking to yourself, but Scott, I just want to put some good out into the world. Why do I have to, why do I have to like, talk about Jesus too? Isn't doing the good stuff enough? Isn't it good enough to just get some love out there in the world? Or, I, Scott, I don't want to be like one of those Christians who, who make their faith and, and they put it in everyone's faces all the time. I don't want to be one of those types of Christians. And like, I understand because I've been there too. When I was in college and I saw Bible and Barstool guy, I thought, well, I don't ever want to be that. So I'm just going to shut up about my faith and I'm not ever going to try and broach the subject with anybody. That worked out really well. <laughs> Here's the deal. First thing I want to say is that you're right to a point. There are a lot of people in this area that put their faith in everyone's faces and attach Jesus' names to things that they shouldn't be attached to. And, and, and I know that, like, if I'm speaking in all honesty, there's a lot of people in our community of Dallas and the larger area that are not the best representations of Christ, right? Like, I've been flipped off by somebody driving a car with a fish on the back. Have you? Right? Not always the best representation. If that was you, it's time to repent. Right? 
You're, you can't put the fish on the back and still be a jerk. Like you just, you got to pick one. Do you want the fish or you want to be a jerk? Which, which one is it? Make a choice. <laughs> this is a fun sermon. So it's important that no matter how big or how small, see, knowing that it's more important that no matter how big or how small our acts of loving kindness are, we need to be able to broach the subject of faith if the opportunity arises, if we see a chance to witness to our faith, we need to seize it because what we're doing is we're giving that person a chance to see a Christ follower in a different light. We're giving them another image of what it means to follow Jesus and that might be an image that they desperately need because up until this point, all they've seen is Bible and Barstool guy. Which brings us to this big point. When we take the opportunity to witness to our faith in the midst of a loving kindness, we don't do it for ourselves. We're not doing this to bring ourselves glory. In fact, it's the polar opposite. We're, do, we're doing it for the other person. We're trying to create an opening for them to have a relationship with a living God who loves them. What is more loving than that? This might be a city and a community in a county with thousands of churches, but I am increasingly convinced that what we have in Dallas is a cultural Christianity that has been tamed and kept reserved for Sunday mornings. And what I think our community needs more and more is for people to be invited into a living relationship with a living God who loves them deeply. Once we express God's love to our neighbors and the opportunity is there, if we will witness to our faith, then we're going to do more than simply get a thank you. Let me put it this way. If you treat someone with love, it could change their day. But if you tell someone why you do it, it could change their life. What if that conversation that makes you so uncomfortable actually got them to seek out a church and actually got them to invest in a relationship with God and actually got them to live a life with God for decades that they otherwise would not have lived? Would you do it? <laughs> like, let's be clear. I know I stand up on a stage and I'm very outgoing. I'm an introvert, like hardcore. Like, I don't even look at the cashier at the grocery store. I'm like, this is not a time to make friends. I, can, we just, can we just move along with our day? Like, it, it, it really makes my skin crawl to have to get out and do this kind of stuff. But when I think about it in those kind of terms, that my uncomfortability is potentially closing someone off from having a relationship with God, whew, it makes me second guess my decision to stay quiet. Let's keep going. This brings us to the last why uh, in our evangelism. This is where I'm going to close today. If we want to understand the power of the scripture that we read to start this morning with, we need to understand the circumstances surrounding it. So, so Jesus is interacting with these Pharisees and these Sadducees, and I explained who they are earlier. So these are some powerful religious types. These are smart guys. They know the law frontwards and backwards. And, and one thing they love to do to test each other, and if, if there was ever someone claiming to be a prophet or a messiah, they would kind of quiz each other, and they would throw out these crazy scenarios to see how much do you really know your stuff? And that's what they're doing with Jesus. They're playing stump the Jesus. And, uh, and so he's talking to the Pharisees in this scene before, or the Sadducees rather. Right before he tells them to love God and love their neighbor, he's talking with the Sadducees in the same place. And they pose him this sort of almost riddle, like is what it is. It's this crazy, hypo, whoa, crazy hypothetical scenario where they say, okay, what if there's this man and this woman and they get married, Jesus, and then the man dies, and then the woman, in order to protect uh, the, the lineage, she, she is married to his younger brother so that they can continue to, to 
raise offspring. And then, and then he dies. And then she marries his younger brother. And then he dies, and so on, and so on, and so until finally she's married all seven brothers in this family, and they've all died. It's funny. The Bible tells jokes, okay? So Jesus hears it, and then they say, okay, so riddle me this, Jesus. In this scenario, when God resurrects us in the end, who's she married to? And Jesus is like, are you kidding? Who cares? Like, he literally, like, go read the Bible. I'm paraphrasing, but he basically says, who cares? Like, nobody cares about that. That is a stupid question. I know we don't say the S-T-U-P-I-D word if there's kids in the room, but, but Jesus says, that is not a good question. You have the Son of God sitting in front of you, and you're going to ask me a riddle about a woman who marries seven dead brothers? Like, what, what are you doing? Before that, the Pharisees are talking to him, and they're asking him about coins. They say, hey, see this coin? It's got Caesar's face on it. Should they pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, what they're trying to do, if you've read this story before, is they're trying to trap Jesus because Jesus is kind of this upstart revolutionary kind of guy. And if you were an upstart revolutionary kind of Jew, you wouldn't want to pay taxes to the man, you know. That would be the idea. They say, so, so should Jews pay taxes? And Jesus gives them this answer that says, hey, if Caesar's face is on it, I guess it belongs to Caesar, but you should give to God what belongs to God. Boom! <laughs> I was about to drop the mic, Didi, in a very literal way. Glad we're not really live streaming yet, because that means only you saw that. <laughs> Didi's like dying right now. Um... <laughs> So in order to understand this, this, this scripture we read this morning, we have to understand that Jesus has already been, going, been put through the ringer on these ridiculous, ridiculous questions that are all about these tiny little details and tiny little legal theories and, and all the stuff that doesn't matter. And so when they finally ask Jesus this really simple, traditional question, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus gives them this really simple, traditional answer, and it's not what they were expecting. They thought he would offer some wild hair thing about the greatest commandment. No, he goes back to Deuteronomy. That's where this answer comes from. Deuteronomy, like the most Jewish of all the Old Testament. Like it is the most Jewish book in the Bible, right? He goes there, he says, this is what the greatest commandment is. It's what it's always been. Love God and love your neighbor. What he's doing in that moment is he's making us as the readers today and he's making the Pharisees and the Sadducees realize that these priests and these scholars and these really good religious people are overthinking it. They're overthinking it. They're getting bogged down in issues of tithes and taxes and legalistic loopholes and hypothetical hoopla, and they are forgetting about the main thing. They're overthinking it. That's not what faith is about. It's not about any of that stuff. You, you take away the band and you take away the lights and you take away the sound and you take away the building and you take away the steeple and the sign on the corner. And this faith that we talk about, that we yearn for, that we strive for, that we pray to God for, that we work for, that we live for, this faith is about loving God and loving others. Like the end. That's it. And it's nothing new. It's what we've been saying since Deuteronomy. It's simple. It's beautiful. It's powerful. Because what Jesus does in this commandment is he invites us to stop overthinking it. 
and to get back to the main thing. If you want to love God, you've got to love others. If you want to really love others, help them love God. That's why we evangelize. Because we believe in not overthinking it. That's why our shirts say, loving all. (laughs) That's it. It's simple. It's the main thing. We're going to keep the main thing the main thing. So this week, when you go home, when you go out these doors, and you go back to the lives that you've been living, I want you to remember the main thing. I want you to remember to stop overthinking it. It's all about love. This faith that you're looking for is all about love. Remember that it's not about all this stuff that distracts us. It's not about all these little issues and dialogues and diatribes about small stuff that doesn't matter. Leave the bar stool at home. Stop yelling at people. And, and don't be afraid to say the name of Christ to an open ear who's ready to hear it. And don't be afraid to fill someone's belly before you try to talk to them about Jesus. Stop overthinking it. It's all about love. Love God love others, and maybe if we do those two things well, we'll learn to love ourselves as God loves us. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for being a God who desires relationship not only with us, but with the world around us. God, thank you for being a God who doesn't keep us hidden away in our homes, studying scripture and praying. But rather, those activities drive us outside our homes so that we could love a world who is hungry and thirsty. God, as we consider why we evangelize, help us not to overthink it. Help us to keep the main thing the main thing. Help us to remember that everything, all the words in the Bible, everything you've ever told us, everything we've ever done, it all boils down to one thing, loving you and loving your children. Help us to get outside these walls and do that this week. In your son's name we pray, amen.